Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Before Citizen Kane and War of the Worlds, leading Broadway actress Rose McClendon and producer John Houseman convinced a gifted but untested 20-year-old Orson Welles to direct Shakespeare's Macbeth with an all-Black cast in Harlem. Reimagined in a Haitian setting, this revolutionary 1936 production, which came to be known as Voodoo Macbeth, would change the world forever, but the road to opening night proves to be a difficult one. We're joined today by one of the producers, Jason Phillips, as well as the two lead actors in the film, Inger Tudor and Jewel Wilson Bridges. Welcome to Film School Radio. Thank Hi. you for having us. Thank you. There's so much energy in the production. There's just so much about it. Uh, in, in sort of the grand tradition of show business, it has this energy about it that invites you, come on in, we're all on stage, Every the, world, the whole world's a stage. And so congratulations for creating that environment and getting these terrific performances in this film. Uh, Jason, I'll start with you. I, as I said to you uh, off mic, I've never seen this many people attached to a production in terms of directing and producing and writing. Tell me a little bit about the backstory behind uh, the film and how it came to be. Yeah, so this is the seventh iteration of this type of feature film. The We have eight writers and 10 directors, and they are the top of the USC class in their respective um, crafts. And it started with John Watson, who wanted to create this experiment where if we could bring the best that USC has to offer in the writing and directing tracks and then pair that with mostly USC alumni and the department heads and in the producers, can we make a film that is cohesive, that is an ultimate exercise in collaboration? And, you know, it, we're here today because it worked, which is extremely exciting for all of us. And because it teaches all of us, both the alumni and the students, to leave your ego out the door. And one of the prevailing themes of the movie is community over the individual. And I always talk about how once we all sort of gave into the process and knowing how the process worked, we we're able to create better work on screen. And so I think the idea really comes from how can we teach the next emerging generation of filmmakers what it means to collaborate with one another and not just think my way or the highway when approaching different uh, projects in the future. When I saw the list that I just described, of especially of the directors, I was looking for differing styles. I was my my antenna were up to see how people were approaching it. And to yeah. your point, Jason, it's seamless. I you wouldn't know that unless you read the credits in the film that there were all these different people involved in the production. So, my congratulations to you. I'll start with you, Inger. In terms of just sort of preparing for the role, knowing well, first of all, this is a story I didn't have any idea about in terms of Orson Welles' history. This is completely new to me. Uh, in terms of your uh, preparation, because you're preparing for two roles, right? Mm -hmm. Preparing to be your character with Rose McLennan, but you're also preparing to be in a in Macbeth as well. So let's talk about that, different approaches to different kind of uh, challenges. Well, the the thing that was exciting about this for me was that 
most people have never heard of Rose McClendon. Um, and in many ways, that's actually freeing because there's there's nothing to compare my performance to. There's no, you know, oh, Rose talked like this or she acted like that. So that made it a little bit easier. But what I did was more emotional work and really trying to just find out where Rose lived in terms of what was going on, her determination, her passion for wanting to do this project, her feelings about Orson and sort of having this, as, as my family would say, this junior startup, you know, come to the fore and, and have him direct, you know, a show that she presumably is going to star in. And, and what all of those things must have felt like, as well as being the co-head of the Negro Theater Unit. So right. really focusing on that. And then fortunately, and not just for myself, but I know Jewel and a number of the actors, a lot of us have had uh, classical theater training. So preparing for the Shakespeare, which was very exciting because Lady M, of course, is a role that many actresses would like to play. It was that part I felt, I felt like I had a good uh, base, a good grounding for that. And so, as you said, the, the challenge was playing an actress playing a role. Um, so it was, it was fun. It, it was a, it was a good challenge and it was, um, it was an experience I really enjoyed. And I thought the directors really handled the Shakespeare well for doing it in this movie. Well, uh, Joel Wilson Bridges, you are playing someone that, the whole world has some idea. He's a big personality, a, 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 an amazing talent, mercurial. There are a lot of things that we could say about Orson Welles, but you're playing him before we knew Orson Welles, essentially. So how do you approach a role like that? Well, no, you know, um, in many ways, this process helped me free up in order to approach uh, portraying a historical figure. I, From the moment I got cast, uh, we had about two weeks of preparation before we started shooting. So there really was no time to get in in my head about whether or not I was going to do them completely accurate. Accurate. I had to just go and serve the story. Uh, I knew going into the project that I was uh, shorter than Orson was. Uh, physically, there were many things that I, I didn't look like them. Uh, mm -hmm. So I focused on the psychology. I, I focused on their background. I, I focused on as much a kind of reverse engineering of their isms as I could. I looked at uh, Orson later in life uh, because, you know, we, we do have commonalities of ticks and little things, uh, even as we age. But still, like, we, I couldn't find any, like, early, early footage. The, I think the earliest footage I found was an interview with Orson about three years after the events when uh, they gave an interview with reporters after the War of the Worlds fiasco. But because of the timeline of it, I, I didn't have time and that was great. I just had to focus on the story that we were telling, focusing on this kind of exploration of Orson. I, I think it's better because if you just focus too much on the pressure of getting it completely right and what people will think, it will kill the flow. Yeah. And I just had to trust that my take was right and trust uh, the direction that the producers and the directors wanted to go in by casting me and everything else was none of my business. And <laughs> I was just grateful for the entire journey. I truly happened. Yeah. I think of the temptation if I were, if this were something I was in front of me, I'd be, I'd be tempted to watch Citizen Kane over and over and over again, but that's not Orson Welles and that's certainly not him during this period of time, but that sort of big personality, which is 
I'm sure who he was. He was that. He had, I'm sure, certain he was a big personality, and you play him that way. And uh, it's good to see. I wasn't aware of his first wife, Virginia. And and just there's a lot of things in the film that are just sort of informationally interesting. Just sort of just I had no idea all of these things had happened when they happened. A lot of people equate Orson to this big personality later, but the truth is that Orson was a big personality even in the beginning. That was the most fascinating thing I found in my research. This is a kid who at 16 walked into a professional Shakespeare company, had never worked professionally at that point in Ireland, had the chutzpah to present themselves as being this incredible professional with this huge resume. And the people conducting this audition knew what was up, but because of their confidence and the balls they basically had, they said, fine, we'll audition you. And they were phenomenal. Yes. So everything that y'all, everyone has seen uh, of Orson in their personality, they had early on. Oh, that's great. You mentioned, Jason uh, Phillips, you mentioned earlier that this was a production from the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Let's explore that a little bit. And I, But I want to come back to this, the story itself. And was this a Depression era, Roosevelt administration era, the federal theater program? But I want to talk a little bit about, I guess, today's theater, today's cinematic arts, um, how this came about in terms of the development. What is it part of something that's a tradition at the school? Is that... Yeah, so they've made seven other features just like this with eight writers and seven direct or ten directors, excuse me. And uh, Professor John Watson has overseen all of them so far. So what happens is the eight writers get together in the fall semester. They write the script in a writer's room type style, each taking different passes at different storylines, pitching different ideas to come up with what they agree the most that they want to follow down. Then that script is made, the producers are brought on, the directors are hand-selected, and by the next semester, we are all shooting um, by March. So we have about two months of prep after that that script is created. One of the coolest parts of the process in the beginning, just to create a level of cohesion between each director, is we actually made a test shoot of the entire film. So each director has about 10 minutes chronologically of the movie. So they would go out with their iPhones and their friends and be at their houses and shoot what they thought their scene should look like. Then we could watch the movie from start to finish, see where certain directors were pushing this type of style, certain directors are going in this direction, and what are the areas that we all agree on that we would like to continue down, and what areas do we need to fully pull back from. And this helped us really ground ourselves within each other to find that one through line that we now see in the movie today. That's great. What a great tradition. And with the history that the USC Cinematic Arts School has, it's just, it's great. I mean, I, what a what a great tradition. What a great way to be exposed uh, in terms of as an artist to get your work out without the pressure, <clears throat> excuse me, without the pressure of creating your own independent yeah. film and then hoping that somehow it catches on. So you have you have this in your resume. Well, independent features are such a weird market to jump into right after you graduate, either from the graduate program or undergraduate. So it's a great launching pad for young people to get started. We could spend an hour talking about the tradition totally. of the of USC and in, in the yeah. world of cinema. That's goes without saying. But I want to talk about the story I didn't know. Um, the story of you know Voodoo Macbeth and 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 also being put together through the through this. Uh, federal theater program that was being that was being put forward by the federal government we forget how much support the federal government used to provide for the arts and how vitally important it is not only just in terms of 
appreciation of art, putting it front and center, but the jobs it provides, the people who it puts to work, and and they become part of a, a growing garden of people who go go out into the world and do do more and more. Uh, I don't know how, who who wants to talk about this. I definitely do. I mean, <laughs> I that was that was the whole reason it was part of the Works Progress Administration was for the Federal Theater Project to provide jobs and specifically for the Negro Theater Unit in Harlem to provide jobs for the residents of Harlem. So it, it's interesting because in the movie and in real life, there were protests. And one of the reasons for the protests was there was a concern that if Orson Welles was directing this, even though they didn't know who he was, but just having a white director, there was a concern that there wouldn't be enough jobs for the Black residents of Harlem. I'm always excited to think about the fact that maybe we could go back to the model of our government funding theater um, beyond just the National Endowment for the Arts. And to think that, like you said, not only was it thought of as a, as a way to put art front and center, but how many jobs you can provide. I mean, you know, there had to be at least 100 jobs if you think of all of the actors, because it was a big cast and you have the crew, you have the stagehands, you have all of those things. So they were able to actually employ a lot of people, which was the whole point. Right. And a thriving theater in an area where there are restaurants and there's cafes and there's cabs who are picking them up and there's there's the ancillary yes. part, of, part of anything. And especially something that brings a community uh, into an, an environment, into a story that they weren't familiar with. They're learning about. They're learning about people. They're learning about life, and that's that's the the fabric softener of of, of a society, right? That's the thing yes. that makes it all kind of feel feel right. Um, well, it's important to know that that does exist in small pockets in this country. I mean, of yeah. course, on a commercial level, you see it in New York, how it drives so much ec uh, economics for the city of mm -hmm. New York. But there are lots of cities and communities that have very strong local theater uh, uh, companies in which if you actually go to the community members there, they'll tell you not only their one favorite show, but their top five shows that they've seen over the last decade. Also, when it comes to federal programming and support uh, from governments, other countries have this. You see this very prevalent in Europe. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibility, but it would require most of the people recognizing in our country the value of this and pushing our legislators to reinstate this. And we don't have to go that far. Canada has a very thriving yes. entertainment, film and theater they do a great job, but you're right. And even in Europe, you have two countries sponsoring, you know, films that are being considered for awards and those kinds of things. So you see that kind of cross pollinization. That's again incredibly important. And finally, I this is no small feat. I didn't know that that these are presented at theaters. These films. I mean, I'm sorry that these the other films. I assume the other films, but this one was presented at festivals. And did exceedingly well in on the festival circuit. Jason, I'll, you want to take a crack at ex talking about, about just how it resonated with so many festival goers. And these are hardcore yeah. film fans, right? These are the people who are the true believers who go to film festivals. So, yeah. So this is actually the first feature from USC to ever get a theatrical release. So we are extremely excited about that. 
And um, with the festival circuit, I think people were really drawn to the film because of what you were saying earlier, that they didn't know that this story had actually happened and that they hadn't been exposed to this. And I think that's been across the board. We even had a question the other night in a Q&A where someone began the thing, their question by saying, I had no idea this happened and I wish I did. But thank you for bringing this film so that we could get to know the events of this historic moment in theater history. So I think that was a major draw throughout our entire festival circuit that really helped us get to where we are today. I know uh, we actually got our distribution through one of the festivals we were at at Sedona International Film Festival, where the distributor, Light Your Entertainment, actually saw the film, loved it, and then we kind of continued our conversations from there. So festivals still have a major power in getting small independent feature films out into the world. That's great. In addition to all of that, Again, it's a showcase for all the people in it. And I want to, I mean, it could run down the list of, there's a lot of great actors. We have two of the lead actors with us here, but there's uh, Jeremy Tardy, Ashley Haynes, June Schreiner, Daniel Kuhlman, Reckless Watson, Gary McDonald, and Hunter Bodine. And I just want to get their names out there because... This has a style. It feels very much of the time that this production was put on it. It has a very 30s, 40s vibe to it. It's very, it's it's a very different kind of filmmaking that we're generally not used to now, but there are some very successful films. And it reminds me a lot of Robert Allman's last film, Prairie Home Companion. This yeah. film kind of has that sort of in front of the camera, behind the camera, on stage, off stage vibe to it. And it's told in that very much in that same style of we're going to put on a show and my uncle's got a garage. We're going to, it's going to be great, you know, and that's the kind of vibe. And it just invites you into this, into this whole experience. That was one of the cool things about this project because most of the actors had experience uh, theatrically. Uh, a lot of the writers and the directors had experience uh, theatrically. So for many of us, this was such a beautiful melding of mediums from cinema and theater. And so many of us approached it with that kind of a love letter and a heart. And it truly feels a little Russian doll, the show within the show within the show. <laughs> we all had an eye on that and recognized how meta it was. In fact, you know, in the movie, there they talk a lot about the superstitions with saying Macbeth and a theater. And even during our production, there was one day in which we completely lost all power <laughs> and we had to we had to shut down production so we even joked that we got to experience like oh i wonder if that's what this is playing out so there were a lot of meta moments for all of us congratulations all around congratulations on the performances Inger Tudor, as well as Jewel Wilson Bridges for your work and as well as Jason Phillips and your entire team I'd love to see that sort of uh, team photo, that football, you know, kind of that football <laughs> photo, you know, yeah. I'd love to see that, that picture. And um, thank you all. Thank you so much. The film again is called Voodoo Macbeth. It is out through Lightyear and also in theaters. Let me just make sure that we all get this. It actually has been playing in Los Angeles. If it's still at the Lemley Royal, Jason, I'm going to ask you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's at the, it, currently at the Lemley Royal as well as in New York at the Angelica Village East and will be opening in San Diego, Santa Ana, right down the road, San Ramona, San Ramon, pardon me, and New Orleans. So be looking for it. You can go to voodoomacbethfilm.com. That'll give you all the information you want about cast, crew, uh, the trailer and everything else. So my very best to all of you for your work here, especially 
to the lead actors, Inger Tudor, as well as Jewel Wilson Bridges, and the producer, Jason Phillips. I look forward to the day when you're all working on your, either as an actor or producer, those $150 million big budget films, and you'll come back and join us again. Thank, Thank you, Mike. Much. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.